You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. Welcome back to another episode of the Woodsman Podcast. I am your host, Mitchell Shark, and I am running ragged this time of year. We are got a lot of busy stuff going on in family here. Um, my wife is due to have our second son in literally a month. We're in we're in that thirty day window right now of when we could possibly be meeting our next son, and uh, this a week from this Sunday is my uh my our first son's second birthday and it's crazy to think that like he's running around and babbling and carrying on I'm like i just can't believe how fast time goes you know here we are we're almost into march and i just can't get over how fast time goes um this time of year you know with with work i'm going all over the place and I'm, I'm meeting some uh, potentially new clients I, I drove about two hours away to meet a meet a new grower um i might be working with i'm hoping i get the opportunity to work with but uh driving around I'm having a lot of winter meetings with uh with farmers you know we, we do this every year you know i take soil tests in the fall and we come out with uh we come out in the winter time we talk about those soil tests we talk about what we're going to implement in fields from herbicide programs and fertility programs and uh, what we're going to do to try to drive yield and be ultimately be as profitable as possible for for all my growers and you know the the conversation kind of just is constantly ringing in my ear because a lot of times it's the same stuff over and over again for you know dozens and dozens of people and uh, as I'm going through this, you know, I'm realizing, you know, here we are, we're almost into March and what better time to be thinking about planning for your food plots than right now. And we're going to be faced with a lot of challenges this year. If, if you plant food plots, there's some stuff that's going to happen this year for your products and stuff you're typically used to doing that might be a little bit difficult this year. And I'm going to explain why that is. Um, first of all, we got some, some issues as far as finding glyphosate and using glyphosate in your food plots. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that here in a little while. And fertilizer prices are significantly higher than they, than they normally are. Um, you know, for, I'm seeing growers experience two and a half to three and a half times normal fertilizer prices. And that becomes a challenge for our growers. And a lot of the time it's not as big of a challenge for food plotters because there's easier ways we can get around it. Or a lot of people don't put the emphasis emphasis into their food plots that they need to to try to have quality fertility and have a quality food plot. We're going to touch base on all that. And uh, first thing I really want to talk to you guys today about is clover. Uh, clover is one of my favorite food plots. I think clover has a, a great place on most properties. 
and uh, it's a very popular food plot. And there's a lot of great information out there. There's a lot of great potential for your hunting season. It's great for your deer herd. And there's also a lot of really confusing information out there when it comes to what is the correct way to establish a clover plot, what is the correct way to keep weeds out of it. And uh, let's talk about that. So looking ahead, um, a lot of people think they see guys planting in April. You're seeing corn and you're seeing soybeans and you're seeing uh, farmers working in fields. And it usually gives everybody the itch to be, okay, I want to plant my food plot. I want to go out and I want to go back to the the back corner third plot that I have. And I'm going to replant the clover back there. A lot of the time what's happening is when you're looking at farmers doing that, that end of April, beginning of May time frame, and you want to start to plant a new clover plot, you missed your window. You're planting your clover too late. And there's a reason for that. Clover germinates at a significantly lower temperature than all the summer annual plots or summer annual weeds that you see come into those plots. Also, we got a lot of issues with variability rain. You know, you know, you heard the saying, April showers bring May flowers. Well, there's a reason for that. And April showers bring really, really good food plots if they're planted on time. When I'm making recommendations for guys to be planting their alfalfa, alfalfa and clover are really similar in the way we manage it. And when I'm making recommendations, I've had guys plant their alfalfa in the last week of March and the first week of April. Now, mind you, my location where I am at is the southern third of the state of Pennsylvania. If you looked at the state of PA and you divided it into thirds um, across the state, I'm the bottom third. But that translates into the middle third being the first week of April, sometimes the second and the top third, the second usually is plenty. The second week of April in that April, you know, seventh to fourteenth time frame is usually a fantastic time to be preparing to plant your your spring clover food plots. And a lot of people talk about spring is the the biggest fail. And what I mean by that is it's the biggest fail for planting clover. And that's not true if you're planting at the appropriate time. And that's the beginning half of the spring, right when we're starting to see that first spring green up. That's when clover wants to start to wake up. Think about your clover that's already established. When that soil is starting to warm up in that time frame, that is one of the first things. It's not the first thing. It was one of the first things that starts to grow out. But you're not seeing ragweed germinate. You're not seeing pigweeds germinate. You're not seeing foxtail and all sorts of summer annual grasses that typically choke your clover plots out at that time. You're not seeing those in early April. So you want to get your clover planted and established then and allow it to get enough leafy growth on it. That way in May, when we start to see some of those summer annual weeds, which keep in mind, guys, perennial plants take a long time to germinate and get established. It's a slower process because it's a perennial, it's not an annual. An annual plant has one life cycle. It is trying to put as much biomass on as possible. It's trying to produce a seed head, let those seeds fall, and it dies in the same year. So there's very, very different evolutionary structures going on there that's making those plants you know, survive. So if uh, we have 
young clover established, and we get into that beginning part of May, and it's it's large enough that we're able to apply a herbicide on it, then we can apply herbicide at the appropriate time, and then we can kill ragweed, pigweed, foxtail, um, you know, thistles if they're in fields, you know, whatever it might be, we have way better weed control in those cases. So before we get into talking about the herbicides, let's talk about about another topic in clover that's a real hot topic, and that's frost seeding. Um, Frost seeding, now is a great time. Uh, Most of the month of February here, we've seen some great conditions, and we still have some great conditions coming. You know, today was, uh, as we record this, this is a Wednesday. This week we had 60-degree temperatures during the day, and now this weekend we're looking to drop into the – the the 20s into the teens and it's looking like it's going to be going back and forth like that into next week and we'll be getting some days that it gets into the 40s during the day and that freeze thaw condition in my opinion that's one of the best times to be doing your frost seeding Um, not that you can't do it earlier and you have a lot of people that push it to do earlier and when you get that first snow in january or february that you should be seeding your clover and you can do it there's just no need. It, it's just it's just a buzz is what it is. It's, it's really just somebody being able to go out and try something that's different and, and talk about it. And it's no better than waiting for the appropriate freeze-thaw conditions in late spring, which is typically how frost seeding has started. And it's typically where you've seen the, where I've seen the most success in frost seeding. But if you want to have a successful clover plot established with frost seeding, you got to have the seed bed maintained. So I was just at a uh, just at a friend's property. We're talking about trying to frost seed some clover in in this part of his property that he got. And I took a look, uh, took a walk with him and looked at it. And the field is established grasses. And there's no way that we are going to have established perennial grasses that have a, a deep root system. You know, you think about how much uh, plant matters on top. That's how much root structure is on the bottom, and that root structure is robust, and that is going to easily outcompete when the soil warms up any little clover seed that you put in there. You got to have bare dirt. If you have any established weeds, especially a perennial weed, your clover frost seeding is going to fail. And the other thing you got to keep in mind is residue management. You know, I have some some food plots that get a ton of weeds in them, or, or I'm sorry, leaves and sticks and debris and plant matter residue. And you gotta you gotta get that out of there when you go. You gotta get seed to soil contact and allow freezing thawing to occur to work it into the soil and then germinate when it reaches that soil temperature it needs. Best way to do that: get a backpack leaf blower and have at it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that planning time and how important that is. And a lot of the time, you know, here we are the end of February, we're getting to the beginning of March, and a lot of people aren't even thinking about planting. But if you think about it now, it's going to prepare you to have those clover plots getting getting established on time or maintained at the appropriate time. And that's going to allow weed control to take place at the right time. So at this point... If you are planning on doing some clover plot maintenance or clover plot establishment, then here's where you might want to take a pen and a paper and take some notes and some of the stuff I say because we're going to talk a little bit about the herbicides and the stuff you can use. And if we are talking about 
getting a clover plot established, you must have three trifoliate leaves. And what that means is from the main stem, it needs to have three shoots coming off of the main stem with your, your typical little pretty clover leaf coming off. And if you have that, most of the herbicides that are labeled for clover, it is safe to spray. And it's a very small plant, and you'd think that it's going to ding it up, but it won't if you, if you wait for that time. Now, the weeds you're going to be looking to control when you're talking about May is the stuff we talked about earlier. You're talking about killing young ragweed, young pigweeds, anything that is small. And you got to keep in mind, most food plotters are so spoiled because they're used to Roundup. If you spray Roundup, if it touches it, there's a, there's Roundup-resistant plants. But for the most part, the things that you're trying to kill, if Roundup touches it, it dies. And it smokes it. And it will be dead and crisp and, and brown in a very short amount of time. And it's not the case when you have these other types of chemistries. It's a slower move of uh, systemic herbicide through the plant and it just takes a longer time you got to have the right conditions when you spray but the the herbicides themselves um, just take a little bit longer sometimes to show the effects of and with that it's not as forgiving when you have tall weeds you know roundup i've seen knee high and waist high weeds you spray them with roundup and they're dead as a doornail if you try to wait and spray with some of the herbicides I'm about to talk to, especially the grasses, you are going to have no effect and you're going to say, well, those herbicides didn't work. He's out of his mind. You need to be looking to spray your weeds when they are two to four inches up to six inches. After that, you are starting to really, really test the limits of that chemical. And then you have to use higher rates or you're, you're just not going to be able to have a, have a, complete control. So the first herbicide I want to tell you about is Amazapir. And Amazapir, the generic trade name that you hear is called Pursuit. It's a herbicide that has a, a moderate amount of burn down control for a lot of those summer annuals. It also has good control if you have an established clover plot that has maybe some chickweed or some, some henbit and purple dead nettle, some of those winter annuals that you'll see in April leading into May. It'll take those out, and it's also going to take out some of those summer annuals. Timing is everything. For your established clover plots, a lot of the time my applications are somewhere between the last week of April and the second week of May. That's the time frame you're going to be looking. And a lot of time, the, the new seeding clovers won't be far off of that. Maybe slightly early, depending on how you established your plot, whether you did frost seeding or if you did tillage. If you did tillage, it might be a little bit sooner because the soil probably warmed up. And those weeds are going to be more available quicker. Now, another one is called Mazamox. It's a sister to that, and its trade name is called Raptor. Raptor is very, very similar, but the difference with Raptor is, for those of you who like chicory in your clover, uh, clover food plots, you can spray this on and it won't kill your chicory. The first one, you can only do this with a straight clover plot. Your pursuit is clover only. Amazomox or Raptor, you can spray right over the top of clover and chicory and have a beautiful clover chicory field. And you can minimize the dandelion and the 
you know, the uh, horse nettle and stuff like that that might be in a field. Now, giving you all kinds of nerdy, fancy chemical names, and you think, wow, that sounds great. How, uh, how easy is it to get? Well, that's a tricky part. A lot of these chemicals you're getting in one-gallon jugs. Sometimes you're getting them in two-and-a-half-gallon jugs. The use rate is four ounces per acre. Now, you think about that and how much you've got to spray, and a lot of the time we're talking about less than an acre in clover on a lot of properties. Some have more, but you wouldn't use that in a decade, most likely. And by that time, the chemistry half-life is going to be reduced, and we're going to have all kinds of problems. And uh, then, it, then, then it comes back to, well, why did you tell me that in the first place? Well, here's your opportunity to go visit your neighbors, talk to a farmer, if he's got alfalfa in his field, chat with him. Say, hey, what herbicides are you using? Maybe you could help me out. And it's a great way to network. It's a great way to learn what's your neighbor doing. It's a great way to just communicate with a farmer. And you'd be surprised the things you can learn about your food plots from a farmer. And maybe he can hook you up with a, a, a small 10-ounce jug because he's going to be out spraying his alfalfa at the times that I'm telling you. You know, another opportunity is maybe you got a couple hunting clubs, maybe you got a QDMA co-op in your area, and you can help everybody together, and you can get one jug of herbicide, and you can divvy it up amongst everybody, and you can conserve that cost. Because the cost of those jugs is not cheap, but if you're able to break it down with multiple people, it becomes very, very affordable. You know, typically if you're looking to get... Uh, a smaller herbicide jug from Whitetail Institute. I'm going to throw a name out here. They have uh, Slay and Arrest Herbicide. And those are very similar chemistries or the same chemistries that I just talked about. The Slay herbicide is Amazapir, which is Pursuit. And the Arrest is Clethodim, which is Grass Control. And they're affordable at the sizes they are. But if you, if you talked about it in large supply... The rates we apply it at and what it normally costs for a farmer, the, the what you're paying in that small jug, if we made that into a per acre charge and I told a farmer what we'd have, I mean, we'd go broke trying to spray it. And that's just the, that's just the sheer reality of what happens when you bring something down to smaller, smaller amounts and you, you raise the prices. That's just the truth and that's the way it works. And those herbicides are great herbicides. And if you're talking about really, really small microplots, I would go that route because it's going to be the most affordable thing you can do. But if you've got more acres or you can share, you can network with farmers or, or neighbors, I would go that way for sure. Last thing I wanted to say was grass control. Grass control you usually don't have to worry about until May. So we're a little bit ahead of the game um, if we're talking about grass control now. But your, your, your select, your arrow, which is all clethodim at 8 ounces per acre. The range goes 6 to 12, I believe. It might even be more diverse than that. Um, you, you, that's going to control your grasses if we can get them at a, at a small, small window of, of height. So anyway, that's my uh, that's my nerd talk in chemistry. I'm not really big in my nerd talks in chemistry, but I think it's really important things to think about if you're going out to manage your clover food plots. Um, don't go out and may mow them in spring. Uh, let them grow. Let them let the deer pick what they want. Let the turkeys pick what they want, and uh, get that first batch of weeds and let that stuff start to establish. 
you're going to get more weeds that come throughout the year and it's okay to let them go but you want to get your clover established before you let weeds choke it out so now the next struggle that we're going to have this coming year is uh oh, the first struggle i should say in uh in things i want to talk about spring food plots is herbicides and fertilizer we got some crazy crazy prices of things going on this year and overall availability is going to be pretty difficult um so let's talk about the first one let's talk about glyphosate let's talk about roundup um there is a shortage of glyphosate out there and where i was typically used to having growers get it for 15 to 20 dollars a gallon through their herbicide dealer um, we're talking about seeing it go up to 60 and 70 dollars a gallon this year so when you talk about bringing that into you know your your mom and pop shops your lows and department stores um, any any farm service store that you would typically get your glyphosate from for your garden or for your food plots or whatever you're going to see those prices significantly increase and you might not see them at all. In fact, I've been to some Lowe's and I've talked to some people that have been to some shops that would normally have Roundup and they don't have it at all. And it's not because of COVID. It's because we had some stuff going on with uh, some corporate purchases and business moving around and there was some uh poor planning in the beginning of production of glyphosate a few years ago before COVID even happened. And now we're starting to see the effects of that. It's not because we have uh, all kinds of, of glyphosate concerns in, you know, cancer and, and all the media stuff here. You know, I'm not going to really get into that too much. But what I will tell you is Roundup is a tool. Herbicides are tools. And if we get a little bit too reliable on herbicides they will have adverse effects on our soil if you are dumping the herbicide on just to dump the herbicide on you do that on a regular basis we're going to have adverse effects on that soil health and the response that that's going to give with that salt-based product and i'm not going to stand here and say that roundup doesn't cause cancer you know there's there's a lot of trial and there's a lot of speculation there's a lot of opinion going around about that and all i'm going to tell you is a lot of the homeowners and the the lawsuits and the stuff you see and from what i've seen um, you're talking about people, and I've, I've seen this time and time again, when you treat a chemical with no respect, you're not wearing any personal protective equipment, you're not wearing gloves, glasses, you're wearing sandals and shorts, and we're dumping way more Roundup in a tank for a backpack sprayer to kill some weeds on your sidewalk and you're letting it touch you, you're, you're not washing your hands repeatedly. I've seen that time and time again. And when we're talking about doing it in agricultural situations, a lot of time we're using way less Roundup than you use in a homeowner situation. And we have personal protective equipment that's going to reduce that. So if you've ever heard of acute exposure, that's kind of really, really acute exposure when you talk about the situations that you typically find with Roundup. And there's a lot of controversy, and I'm not trying to sway you one way or another. I'm not anti-Roundup. I'm saying use these tools smart, guys. Now, the food plot programs that you use and you put together can be so diverse, and you're probably thinking, how am I going to do it without Roundup? And rather than go into so many different scenarios and get you guys confused and, and bored, um, I'm going to go through what I'm going to do this year. 
So if you listen back to our fall episode on food plots, I talked about what we had chose to plant this year. Um, we chose to plant half of our food plots um, with, a, with a no-till drill for the first time. I was so excited to use that. And we planted um, soybeans, winter peas, and oats in one half of each food plot. And on the opposing side, we planted a mixture of brassicas. There was some kale, there was some turnips and radishes. There might have been a couple other species in that. And it was split up that way. And the last thing that I did was um, top dress with cereal rye. Not annual rye grass, cereal rye. You can use wheat, but we used rye. And so now when I was just walking food plots tonight and I was trying to find some sheds and I was uh, just trying to enjoy creation out here and looking at these plots, the deer have them mowed down pretty well. You know, there's there was a little bit of crimson clover mixed in with some of the blends and, you know, there's some of that shown. But, I mean, the, the plots are pretty well down to bare dirt. But I know that when the soil warms up, the rye is going to take off and there's going to be a little bit of of those uh, those annual plants, the, the clover, the peas might come back a little bit might get a little bit of rejuvenation of some of the brassica side but you're going to have some of the food plot coming back and warming up in spring and then i also have some chickweed in fields so what i'm probably going to do is instead of using roundup because i don't know how much i have and i'm looking to try to maximize soil health i think what i'm going to do is spray either 2,4-D or another product that's going to kill some of those broadleaf weeds and let that cereal rye grow up real tall and make some biomass. And there's a couple benefits from doing that. Um, and I'll get into some of those benefits in a little bit here, but one of them is going to be the fact that it'll help shade out some of the summer annual weeds that will grow as the soil warms up. And another thing that I might do, depending on how much rye is growing up and how much shade I'm getting, I might overseed oats this spring. Spring oats would be a great thing to put out and have some attraction as that greens up. Plus, it's going to help with the biomass and the choking out of weeds. That's going to allow a really good clean seed bed to plant my summer cover crop that I'm going to plant before we go into our fall planting. And Instead of using Roundup, we shouldn't have a broadleaf weed concern because we've managed it through a, a natural form. I can go back and use a clethodim herbicide and kill those grasses, you know, oats and rye or a grass, and it will kill those, and that, that's a, a chemical measure of doing that. What I also might try this year, and this is a little bit more of an advanced technique, not everybody's going to have this, but, you know, Fortunate enough for me, I have access to some great agricultural equipment with the career that I have, and I'm going to tinker with trying a crimper that's going to roll that down, and the crimper actually breaks the plant. It's going to prevent uh, nutrients and moisture from flowing anymore as it as it crimps the uh, the vegetative outside the, the stem and it's going to uh, ultimately kill it without chemical, and that's going to be something that I'm going to tinker with. Now, for somebody that's hearing this and thinking, well, I'm using very, very simple, simple tools here. I just want to plant a summer plot, and if I use oats and rye, how am I going to seed something else into that without tilling? Um, I'm very... I'm not anti-tillage, but I think a lot of people can, can really 
use no-till in food plots and have successful food plots. And what I recommend you do and try, and it's it, that's what it is. It's a try. It's a tinker. you got to figure out residue and biomass, and that's one of those things we're going to continue to talk about in our podcast with food plot management. But I would recommend you broadcast your summer blend or your next food plot blend right into that mixture. I would recommend going at 1.25 to 1.5 times the normal seeding rate of that mix. And you can go in, spray it with the chemical that we just talked about. You can roll it down in some way. But what, what's most important you do is mow that rye and the oats. And if you mow it and spread that plant material over top of the seed you just broadcasted, it's going to help be a mulch and hold moisture. Now, you will have to be concerned if we don't get a good chemical kill from a grass that it could regrow and choke out some of the stuff that you have there. And what you'll have to do is determine if you have to figure another way of killing it, like like try to find a herbicide, or if you're going to tolerate a little bit of that oat and rye regrowth and what else you have. Because at the end of the day, the deer will tell you what you need. And I, I put way more emphasis into that fall food plot, which we talked about last time. We'll talk a little bit more in the future. But that's going to be a one mechanical way of trying to implement a spring plot with limited chemicals. Um, the, the, the more you can control weeds with biological controls of plants, the less you have to rely on chemicals. And I'm hoping that I can reduce my glyphosate need at least in half by doing some of those things. Now, the last thing I really wanted to share with you guys, and I talked about herbicides. We talked to cover a bunch of stuff here, and, and I'm going on my farming tangents but uh, I wanted to talk about fertilizer for a second. So before you ever put fertilizer on your fields, pull a soil test. It is a very cheap expense that will give you more information and a starting point of what you need to do than anything else possibly could. And you will find that in many cases, you don't even need to apply as much as you already were. Now, having said that, and before we talk about fertilizer, you get that soil test, correct your pH. If I was stranded on an island and I could only have one soil amendment to grow food and survive on that island, it would be lime. I want you got to have a pH that is, relatively speaking, moderate to optimum. And I say moderate to optimum. If you have a pH that shows up as a 6.0 to a 6.1, you're going to grow just about any food plot out there. Now, could you grow a better food plot with a higher pH? Absolutely. But if you have a 6.0 pH, you can plant any food plot mix and you will have success if you manage all your other parameters appropriately when it comes to food plot planting and farming. Um, my sweet spot in all food plots are going to be a 6.5 to a 7. And get that soil test and talk to some people and figure out how much lime or lime equivalency you need to apply. Once we have that in check, now we're talking about fertilizer. You know, we use generic soil tests, and I say generic, it's a basic package. I'm looking for the pH. I'm looking for the organic matter values. I'm looking at the calcium, the magnesium, and I'm looking at the phosphorus and the potassium. 
And the, the things that I really want everybody to look at on their soil tests is the phosphorus and the potassium. Now, when you look at an agronomic soil test, they're going to recommend you pretty good chunk of fertilizer if you've got low values. And I'm here to tell you in your food plots, I do not think you need to be spending your hard-earned dollar on synthetic fertilizer in your food plots. Now, having said that, it's not that you can't. You can you can speed up the process of building your fertility with commercial fertilizer. But in a year where fertilizer is going to cost as much as it is, you need to step back and say, okay, what are my goals in my food plots? What things can I plant with this low fertility, and how can I build it without synthetic fertilizer? So first of all, if you've got a low fertility test, the things that you can grow are going to be cereal grains, oats, rye, wheat. And you'll be able to grow things in the summertime like sunflowers, which I'm not really going to recommend much, but they, they don't have a huge demand in nutrient use. But those cereal grains and some brassicas, you'll be able to get established, and you're not going to have fantastic tonnage. But what's going to happen is those root systems are going to pull whatever it can out of the soil, and they're going to go down as far as they can. They're going to mine nutrients, and they're going to put those nutrients into that leaf material. And if you allow biomass to get on top of the soil, and then you kill that biomass and let it slowly decay on top of the soil that is going to slowly bring your fertility levels up in your food plots and it sounds like a long agonizing process and it sounds like it's pretty finite and i'm not going to kid you when you're talking about going that route and trying to minimize fertilizer um it is time consuming and you got to be tedious and you got to be walking food plots and have a have an understanding of what's happening and you got to communicate with people to understand and learn about this stuff don't get me wrong um but this is the direction that i see when every whenever i walk a food plot and whenever i walk an ag field where we're trying to maximize profitability and not use as much for fertilizer commercial fertilizer with these prices um these are the directions that i'm going to try to build that and I want to give you an example. We did a project the other year where we had a bunch of mixed winter annuals. We had some rye and some you know, turnips and, and radishes and stuff like that. And we let it grow up in the springtime. We didn't kill it. We just let it keep growing. And then my farmers planted a corn or a soybean crop into that. And I wanted to know how much is actually in that plant matter as far as nutrients, how much P and K is in that. So we kind of did some calculations and we harvested a bunch of bunch of the, that cover crop. We measured an area and harvested it and collected it. We weighed it to figure out how much in that area it was, got an average amount of biomass per acre, and then we sent those samples off to a lab. And it was amazing because depending on how much was there, and varying on the fertility that was already in the field, we had samples come back that would have literally 10 tons per acre of forage growing or of, of this green leafy material growing. And when those samples would come back, we found out that on a per acre basis, we were seeing ranges of anywhere from 50 pounds of potassium per acre 
all the way up to almost 200 pounds of potassium per acre was in that biomass right there. That's free fertilizer just waiting to be killed and then released back to the soil surface that your new seeding could take advantage of. It's a slow-release fertilizer. And that's not something that you're going to get right away in this first planting. If you've got a really, really low fertility level, then... You're, you're not going to get that amount of biomass, you're not going to get that root development, and you're not going to get as much nutrients that stratify on the soil surface. But if you slowly do that over time, it'll work. And you can you can speed that process up by giving it a boost start of a P and a K fertilizer and allowing that to do the exact same process, but speed it up. Typically what I would do if I want to try this process but make it go a little bit faster, whatever a fertilizer test recommends in a pounds per acre value of phosphorus and potassium, in year one I would go somewhere between one half and three quarters of that recommendation. And then in year two, I would go somewhere between a quarter and half. And year three, I'm either going to put nothing on or maybe a little bit. But that's a fantastic way to slowly see that boost. Now, I realize we talked a whole bunch about no-till and managing biomass. And a lot of people are thinking, I don't do that. I till my food plots. And I think you need to bear with me a little bit because we're going to talk a little bit more about no-till food plots as we get into the spring. Uh, We're going to be kicking back in and finishing up this series we started back there in the beginning of January on private land management. We're going to talk about some food plots and what species you actually should have on based on your property type and location and deer density and things like that, trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together that we started and uh, we've, we've kind of shifted gears over the past few weeks and talked about a couple different topics. So we're going to talk about that and with that we're going to talk about how you with, with very little equipment can do a no-till food plot and be a success. Um, there's a lot of reasons why you do that. First of all, you can have less man hours and you can have better healthier soils and healthier soil that soil is the exchange between the deer and the, the, it, its belly i mean all those nutrients the plant is just the median of giving nutrients and the better that you keep your soil the happier your deer are and believe it or not they can taste if it's going to be a healthier soil or a poorer soil and healthy soils are very diverse and they've got a lot of biomass and microbial activity and it's not just dirt and I know I'm talking like a nerd here, but I'm, I'm trying to make sure you guys realize how important this is and moving in the direction of your food plots. While it may be a little bit of a headache sometimes and you will fail if you don't get the right advice or you don't take the right context for my advice or you, or you don't follow up with this. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it that you can see some struggles. But I will tell you that if you bear with me and we talk through this stuff and you network with some people who have done this experience, you will find success with this. And you're going to realize how much man hours and how much money you can actually save in doing your food plots this year. You're going to save money on tractors, on diesel equipment, on diesel fuel, um, other equipment and such, and the amount of time it actually takes to plan a food plot. So hopefully that gave you a little bit of excitement. I really wanted to share with you some of that clover thought process and planning, the things you need to do leading into March as we get to that time frame. Um, Hopefully that was a help. 
And we're going to be back soon. We're going to be talking about a couple other topics. We're going to be finishing up um, Steve with Steve Chilcote, the second part of his his interview we had on invasive species management and browse. We're going to be talking about uh, going to be talking about food plots and putting that whole piece together. And I got a special guest. I'm hoping to try to get on here. That's going to be talking about some micro parcels and some of the stuff and experiences he's done with uh, his own micro parcel and shooting some fantastic deer and having great hunting experiences and uh, i really think it's going to be something a lot of people can relate to so thanks for listening this week um hope i didn't talk too nerdy um but i, I think this is all information that you can really apply if you're playing a lot of food plots so take care god bless we'll catch you next week <laughs>